So we're going to start out tonight uh, taking a little bit of a uh, uh, path, not on the beaten path. Uh, I'm going to ask our children, uh, that would be that are normally dismissed for the kids' hour at this time, if they would like, uh, it's up to the parents, of course, to come down forward and they can just sit kind of on the beige carpet or on the steps. I have a story I'd like to share with them. So any kids, please come on forward. It's going to be really awkward if I'm just up here by myself. And if moms and dads want to come down if they need to, some help, that'll be fine. Now you guys look at me because out there is your parents and your grandparents and they're all watching you. So I was, I was thinking the other day about good things and... One of my favorite good things are cookies. Can I ask, by a sincere, genuine, honest show of hands, how many of you love cookies? These are my people. I have loved cookies since I was your age. I will warn you, it can catch up to you. So be careful. So uh, I thought I'd do something a little special tonight. How many of you would like a cookie right here, right now, during church? You should see, yeah, right. (laughs) You should see your parents. All right, I tell you what, I brought some cookies. You ready? So I thought what I would do is, here you go, sweetie, there's a block of butter. Oh, I know you'll enjoy those eggs. Who would like some baking soda? Oh, awesome. How about some sugar? Some sugar? Oh, Dalton, you need some sugar. I'm sorry, not Dalton. (laughs) Ethan. (laughs) Flour. Who's my flour? You can have a flour. That's not the flour you were thinking I'd give you. Maybe some brown sugar? All right. Very good. Let's see here. Um, oh, no, this was sugar. This was sugar. That was salt. <laughs> Sorry, Ethan. <laughs> and last but not least, the vanilla extract. Is some? Oh, what is the one thing that we forgot for chocolate chip cookies? Chocolate chips. You kids are so smart. Let's see. I think I will put those in my pocket. <laughs> now, you know... I know that you all love cookies, and I do too. But the truth is, when I said, can you have a cookie, that wasn't what you were expecting, was it? No. Sometimes in life, we get things that aren't quite what we're expecting. We ask God, God, I thought you loved me. I thought you were a good God. Why would you give me butter and salt? Why would you give me chocolate chips and eggs? Well, the truth is, God gives us people and situations, and even troubles in our lives. And they are like the ingredients in these cookies. And God then mixes them together to form something beautiful. And I know you don't exactly understand all that I'm telling you. But I'm telling you there's coming a point in your life when you'll receive some things you didn't expect. And that's okay. Because God's still making something good and beautiful. And so, 
I'm going to ask you guys, you can give me my, just leave the ingredients up here. And I actually do have some real honest to goodness cookies for you just as soon as we read this story. There was another guy in the Bible and his life, he got some of the things that we talked about. He got some good things and he got some bad things and he got some things that he didn't quite expect. So we're going to be studying him for the next five weeks and uh, I hope you'll keep coming back and I want you to hear about Joseph's story. I really liked my coat. My father gave it to me. Oops. Try this. My father gave it to me. I it had a hundred colors shimmering in the sunlight. And when I wrapped my coat around me with all my might, I felt as if my father was holding me in his arms and saying, I love you. That coat's a pretty good thing, huh? Well, then Joseph got some things he didn't expect. One night, I dreamed that I was working in the field with my 11 brothers. We were tying bundles of grain together And my bundle stood tall while their bundles bowed low. Another time, I dreamed of eleven stars and even the sun and moon all bowed down to me. That's kind of strange, kind of weird. My brothers didn't like those dreams. They growled. Can you guys growl for me? These are angry little children. So you think you will be king, do you? And my father said, will, my, will you, you and my mother bow down to you? My brothers hated me because of my coat and because of my dreams and because of my father's love. See, sometimes we get things we don't expect. I need your help, my father said one day. Go check on your brother's. They are with the sheep, and let me know if they are taking good care of them. I was a little scared. There were eleven of them and only one of me. But I went out to check on them, and I wondered, would they hate me as they had before? Finally, I saw my brothers far away with lots and lots of sheep, and they saw me too. But they, they didn't wave at me. They didn't even say hello. I could see those brothers talking and conspiring and telling secrets the closer I got. Suddenly, I was thrown high into the air and my coat was ripped off of me and they threw me down, down, down until everything I could see was dark except for a light at the top of the hole. Joseph started his story By getting a good thing. What was the good thing? The coat. What was the thing that he didn't expect? Right? The dreams. And what was the bad thing? Got thrown into a well. If you ever get thrown in a well, it's going to be a bad day. Just a little lesson in life there. Okay, let's not go into speculation about ladders and so forth. 
So a lesson for you. Sometimes in life you get good things like sugar. Sometimes you get things you don't expect like almond vanilla extract. And sometimes you get bad things like salt. But God uses all those things to make really good things. And it won't happen today, may not happen tomorrow, but God always makes the right recipe. Okay? So if it's okay with your parents and you would normally go back, you can just proceed back out the back auditorium door, follow Mr. Ron. He's going to take you, and we've got some real cookies for you. Join us again next week, okay? I don't need to give those kids any sugar. What do you guys give them before you bring them to church? I'm glad you bring them. They need to be here. And praise God that you're bringing them. You know, children love stories. And we can learn a lot from stories. And every story has these elements of it. These similar elements in every single story. Whether you're talking about a great novel. Whether you're talking about a non-fiction book. Uh, even a personal biography, they kind of follow this pattern. The pattern is there's these five basic ingredients for a story. There are the characters. There's the main character, or hero, or the heroine. And then there's the people, the secondary, the characters in that person's story. And that person's story is written with purpose. And that's the second part, which is the plot. That author didn't begin writing randomly, without aim or purpose. The author has something in mind. Third, there is conflict. In every plot, there's conflict. There's the way something should work, and then something gets in the way. In our story, there's going to be conflict. Fourth, there is resolution, meaning the problem is fixed. The problem is overcome, the obstacle uh, uh, surmounted, the enemy defeated. And finally, there is the ending, where in our children's story, we live happily ever after. But the story has been completed, and the characters are now different than they were when we started. So let me tell you a story. This past Monday was a snow day. You, of course, know that, probably, especially if you have children, especially if they go to Goddard, because they take lots of days off for any reason, but especially snow. And so as we started the day, we had a full open day. And I had uh, uh, some appointments to tend to and some work to do. I had prepared for the blizzard that was coming and had, had done all of that. And Tyler said, Dad, can we go sledding? And I said, sure, son. I would love nothing better than as your father to take my offspring and have him risk life and limb as he barrels down a hill. Sounds like a great dad idea. And so we go where all sledding enthusiasts eventually end up in the city of Wichita, which of course is the palace. The palace west out by Ridge and Kellogg Near the highway has this embankment that is very steep, very long, and uh, great for sledding. So we take an inner tube out there that we have, 
And we take him and we go sledding. And we had great fun. And the best part of it was watching Tyler run up the hill and then watching him come down and me staying firmly put. But there were a couple of times when he begged me, Dad, why'd you come sledding? Why'd you do it, Dad? And of course, how can I resist a challenge like that? So I went up and I went down, I went up and went down. Had a good time, but you know, I'm no spring chicken anymore. And I got a little out of breath, a little tired. All over my body was wet and cold, and that's never good. And so I said, Tyler, you've got one more run. He said, Dad, how about we go together? And I said, sure, son. We've got insurance. (laughs) And to the elders, I thank you. (laughs) So we go up the hill. Now, we have this tiny inner tube, which is not going to fit a full-grown man, a very full-grown man, and a small child. And so, I look over, and there is a red toboggan that some teenagers have been using, and they've kind of leaned it up against a post, and they aren't using it. So I say, hey, would you mind if we borrowed your toboggan? And they said, sure, no problem. I think I heard them laughing. (laughs) We get in the plastic toboggan. I get in first, and then my offspring comes and sits on my lap. And as I push off, I realize now that Isaac Newton is in the driver's seat. (laughs) And we are sledding, and we're picking up speed. I'm feeling like I'm going to lose control of the ship, but I don't want to. And I don't want to scream like a little girl. So I'll hold on for all I'm worth. And the sled, as we lean just slightly, veers sideways across the hill. And as it veers sideways across the hill, it dumps us out. And Tyler tumbles out, and I, as his father, try to protect him by tumbling over him. And I do, except my shoulder hits the ground. And then my son lands on my shoulder, and I hear a pop. You know, now Tyler thought this was hilarious. <laughs> he, was, he was completely oblivious to what had happened to his dad. He's grabbing the toboggan. He's halfway up the hill. Dad, I'm going again. It's really hard to be a serious parent. Like, son, come back. <laughs> Something's wrong. <laughs> well, to make a long story very short, I ended up at the ER. And the doctors there did an x-ray. And they said, yes, you've dislocated. We're going to have to pop it back in place. So we're going to give you a drug called propofol. And man, it is good stuff. Wow. It, it's like if you have a DVR and you're fast forwarding on it and you, know, you see bits and pieces, but you don't see the whole story. That's propofol for your brain. It's a fast forward. It took, so it took 20 to 30 minutes to do the procedure of popping my shoulder back into place. In my mind, it took like 30 seconds. And my vision was really funny. It looked like when you were looking through the peephole on a door, everybody looked funny. And and it was just completely hilarious to me at the time. So we get through all of that, and I end up with a sling. Fortunately, nothing broken, no surgery required, just a little physical therapy. But I got a good story out of it. And in those stories, in that story, are the same Five basic, sorry, five basic elements of story. Let's review. 
the characters. Well, of course, that was me and Tyler and all the other crazy people at the palace. The plot. We wanted to go sledding. The conflict. I would say the conflict was gravity. Resolution. Propofol. And, of course, the ending, the sling. You see, the character came through the story, and he's different than he was before the story. All of those five elements, God is continually working in our stories to his glory of the story. He's mixing it all together. So for the next five weeks, we are going to be looking at a story and we're going to be looking at that story one ingredient at a time. And that's very intentional. Number one, if I did the whole thing in one sermon, I'd have nothing left to preach about. But number two, life doesn't often come at us in one nice wrapped up lesson. Life doesn't often resolve itself in one chapter. Life isn't like that. It often comes one thing at a time. And just like I gave the kids different ingredients, God is giving you in your life different ingredients of your story that he's mixing together for something amazing. We know Romans 8.28, right? You should know Romans 8.28, but if you don't, even if you do, a good reminder, open it up to Romans 8.28. And we know, this is what Paul says, that all things... Work together for good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. All things work together for good. Well, Joseph's story is much of that. And tonight we're going to look at one part of this story, specifically the characters. And these characters were a dysfunctional group. And I, I can tell you that because they were his family. And this family is the strangest family that you've ever come across. I mean, if, if this family of 12 boys, two wives, two servants, and one patriarch came to Northside and asked to place membership, our elders would say, that's fine, but please go see Elaine first. Because you'll be there a while. This family had some issues, but you see, they were part of who God was forming in Joseph. We read the story and we sort of just kind of blow past this point where the brothers take Joseph and throw him into a well with the intention of leaving him for dead. I've got one brother, he's younger. We fought. Uh, I'm sure my mother wondered if we would make it to adulthood. We fought and fought and fought and fought and fought. But never once did I think about killing my brother. And I don't think he would say, I think he would say the same. But these brothers hated Joseph. Well, as we look at his family and the characters involved, we're going to look at their dysfunctionality and how God used them to do something that was still good and still conforming to his purpose. Have you ever 
come across the website called awkwardfamilyphotos.com. I love the internet for all the weirdness it dreams up. Um, awkwardfamilyphotos.com, if you've never been there, is exactly as described. It is a page dedicated to real family pictures, not quite portrait quality. Let's look at some awkward family photos. <laughs> you can tell which one is the baby of that family, right? I do not know why dad is a dummy in this picture. There's always the one kid in your family who sort of a misfit. Um, please, don't, don't stare at the picture too long. It will hurt. <laughs> uh, some pictures do not really need a, a subtitle. Oh, sorry. <sighs> Scary. Um, these people have some attachment issues. Now, it'll take just a second, but you'll see it. Tell me which kid is most excited to see Santa. Can you, can you turn off the uh, overhead lights? They're not. Now you see. That's a nice, fine family. Just one kid lacks potty training. Well, if the Bible could point to an awkward family photo, it would be this one. Now, that one doesn't look as awkward to us because that's sort of the whitewashed VBS children's version of Jacob and his 12 sons. But let me tell you here, there was some major dysfunction in this group. And that's our first point we want to talk about, is that the characters in Joseph's life were his family. And the characters were highly dysfunctional. Let's look at um, exactly how this might have looked on a flannel graph. This is in Genesis chapter 29. Verse 30. I'm going to cover about a chapter of Bible in about five minutes or less. This story starts out with two sisters. And the two sisters are very different women. The first, Bible describes as Leah. And Leah is not the prettiest woman in the world. She's kind of homely. Scripture says she has weak eyes. And um, she's not the favorite. But she is the oldest. The second woman is a woman by the name of Rachel. And Rachel is, oh, she's beautiful. The world stops turning when you see Rachel. And, of course, between the middle of these two sisters is Jacob. Of course, he's facing Rachel because he loves Rachel. In fact, he told his father, her father, Laban, I would like to marry your daughter, Rachel. And Laban says, all right, tell you what you do. Come and work for me, son. Work for seven years. At the end of seven years, you may have Rachel. So he does that. The scripture says that he worked those seven years and it seemed like nothing to him because of his love for her. 
And all the women in the audience go, oh, why can't you be like that? She works for, he works for seven years. He comes to the father and says, Laban, I've worked my seven years. Please give me your daughter. He does, but in sort of a tricky sort of way, a very Laban-esque kind of thing to do, he gives him a daughter, but not the one that he wants. He gives Jacob Leah. And on honeymoon night, somehow, don't ask me, I know you're thinking it, but Leah goes in and they consummate the marriage and the scripture says that Jacob wakes up and there is Leah and he is fit to be tied. He runs to Laban and says, Laban, what are you doing? It was Rachel I bargained for, not Leah. Give me Rachel. Laban says, hey, what can I tell you? In our culture, we give away the oldest daughter first. So if you want Rachel, it's going to be another seven years. Oh, seriously? But boy, Rachel, she's a looker. And he decides it's worth it. And so he does. He works another seven years and he gets Rachel. Now, uh, these two women have servants. Leah has a servant named Zilpah. And Rachel has a servant named Bilhah. And they do whatever their mistresses need them to do. Whatever their owners say... That will be done. Well, how did these five people make this group of 12 boys? Let's review. Leah, who didn't have much going for her, she did have fertility. That girl could pop them out. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, boom, 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 boom. And in those days, fertility was highly, highly valued. Poor Rachel, no children. But Rachel comes up with a plan. She says, I tell you what I'm going to do. She goes to Bilhah and she says, Bilhah, I need you to sleep with Jacob. And then you can sort of be like a surrogate mom. So Bilhah goes to Jacob and says, Jacob, I must go to bed with you tonight. And Jacob looks around and he says, okay. So they do. And to that union was born Dan and Naphtali. Then, following Dan and Naphtali, Leah, in sort of a, oh no, you didn't moment, talks to Zilhah and says, you know, I heard that Rachel is using her servant, so girl, get to work. (laughs) So Zilhah trudges over to Jacob My mistress says that I must sleep with you tonight. And Jacob looks around and he says, okay. And to that union was born Gad and Asher. Well, this is all looking real good for everyone in the picture except for Rachel. Poor Rachel. And to make matters even worse... With all of this jealousy and enmity and fertility and lack of fertility and surrogate moms. Reuben, the son of Leah, happens to go out one day and find some mandrakes. Mandrakes, people! And you're giving me that look like, what's the big deal with mandrakes? 
Natural reaction, I suppose. Well, you see, in that culture, the mandrakes was sort of believed to be a aphrodisiac, a fertility drug. A uh, Actually, the term that I found in my research was called a love apple. I like that. I mean, I like apples, but I'd really like a love apple. So Leah, she's like, I got the mandrakes, I got the mandrakes. And Rachel's like, really? You get her the mandrakes? She's got four point, kind of 2.5 kids. Really, God? So Rachel goes to Leah. Listen, sister, we've had our squabbles and our differences, but... What do you say you give me the mandrakes? I mean, you've got four children and two by Zilha. You're making Jacob very, very happy. And I've got none. And Leah's like, girlfriend, these are my mandrakes. And I <laughs> know it's right here in the Bible. You're like, I have never read about mandrakes before in my life. So Leah says, I tell you what, girl, you uh, you can have these mandrakes if you give me your man. And Rachel thinks it over. And so she goes to Jacob and says to Jacob, um, Jacob, you need to sleep with Leah tonight because she gave me the mandrakes. And Jacob looks around and he says, Okay. And so, because of the mandrakes, which now are in Rachel's hands, two other children are born, and their names are Issachar and Zebulun, which I remember by saying I-Z, which stands for, is Leah ever going to stop having children? Issachar and Zebulun, and everybody's winning in this scenario except for poor Rachel. And then God remembered Rachel and blesses her with two boys whose names are Joseph and Benjamin. Now, I tell you all of that to set a scenario. Could you imagine a lot of jealousy in this picture? Could you imagine a few squabbles here and there? You've got sisters and half-brothers, and maid-servants. It's getting like Jerry Springer, folks. Highly dysfunctional. <laughs> Do you ever sit around at a family function, family reunion, Thanksgiving, Christmas, or something, and just sit there, kind of against the wall, and you're smiling and nodding and maybe, maybe talking, but you're scanning the room, and you're looking around, and the thought in the back of your mind is, so this is my gene pool, huh? Can you imagine what Joseph was thinking? Now, why in the world would Jacob favor Joseph? Of all these sons, not even his oldest son. Well, you got to look farther back. It was sort of like Jacob 
never had a relationship as the youngest son. He never had a relationship with his father. And so now he's bestowing on the youngest sister all his love and affection. And on the youngest sons all his love and affection. And we look at that and go, whoa, that's quite a set of characters for this story. And maybe then we understand how 11 boys, young men, can now take one of their own, strip him down, probably not gently, tip him over into a well and intend to leave him for dead. One of them comes up with a plan We can't kill him. Let's at least profit off of him. And they sell their own brother to their enemies into slavery. Man. Well, it doesn't make much sense until you understand the characters. And when you understand that Joseph's family was highly dysfunctional. That leads to my second point, which is that everyone's family is dysfunctional. I mean, all of us have people in our families, and we're thinking, I'm not sure, God, if this is the right family. Uh, Christy's grandmother has a way of saying things that I like the way she says it. She says, our family tree, it's got its fair share of fruits and nuts. The Bible says it like this, Romans chapter 3, verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And you know that verse, but just think of sin as dysfunction. And you know the thing that happens when you have dysfunction? Well, let me tell you, since I have a sort of dysfunctional arm. Since Monday, my my arm has basically been in this brace. And because it's been in this brace, immobilized, the rest of my body has tried to compensate for its lack of activity. So my bicep hurts. I mean, it's about, you can probably tell, it's about to rip out of this shirt here. I mean, it's it's pretty intense. Because it's been holding the arm like this all week. My neck muscles hurt because I've been having to hold, because I've been having to hold the arm like this. My back is starting to hurt on the left side because I've been holding my body like this. You see, dysfunction sort of breeds dysfunction. I I know, I I don't mean to, to be mean, but sometimes these things just repeat themselves in families. Abraham was a liar. He lied about his wife, Sarah. She may or may not have been his sister. Isaac repeated that sin. David was tempted sexually. And his son, Solomon, took that temptation to the nth degree. Jesus, in John chapter 5, verse 19, says, Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth... That the Son can do nothing by Himself. He can do only what He sees His Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son also does. This is why my eight-year-old uses words like, apparently, Dad. 
Where did he get the word apparently? Christy's like, really? This is why my two-year-old daughter, after we go uh, come home, uh, she'll look at me and she'll kind of put her foot out and she'll say, shoes? Because she likes shoes. So does her mother, by the way. I wonder where she got that from. Now, those are simple examples, but we know many more examples where the children follow the example of the parents. And we've got a dad who can't control his temper. And so his son learns that that's okay. And he yells, he bullies, and he carries that to his own family. We've got a parent who never had anything as a child, and so they work all the time so they can provide the kids things that they didn't have growing up. And so the kids have everything that they could ever want except a mother or a father. And the sin cycle repeats itself. The good things are repeated and the bad things are repeated. Now don't misunderstand, I am not saying that sin is inherited. Ezekiel 18.20 says, The soul who sins is the one who will die. The son will not inherit the sin of the father, nor the father the sin of the son. But... The wickedness of the wicked man will be charged against him, and the righteousness of the righteous man will be credited to him. You're responsible for your own choices. But sometimes in life, the family you're born into, you're dealt kind of a rough hand. You are your, you are your parents' children, but you are not your parents' choices. And the truth is, that most of the rules they make for you stem from bad choices they made a long time ago. And oh, does it break our hearts when we look at you, a miniature version of us, and see you repeating the very same things. It's like we're looking in the past and we're trying to warn you. We're trying to prevent you from going down that path. We're trying to keep you away from where we went Sometimes you don't listen. So Jacob's family was dysfunctional. (laughs) Our own families are dysfunctional because human beings are broken. So here's the truth. No character in your story is without flaws. I mean, every family in here has abuse and neglect and anger and immorality, and drugs. It may not have all of those, but you've got some. It may not have them immediately, but you've got them somewhere in the old gene pool. You pay attention to those things. You pay attention to those things because you'll learn a great deal of yourself and how God can continue to work in your story. So these are the characters in Joseph's life that brought him to this point. Anger, confusion, betrayal, resentment, shock, sadness. 
It's no fun being at the bottom of the well. But God's not done. He's using the characters in your life to write a great story. And you might resent some of those characters. You might be angry at some of those characters. You might not understand them. But the truth is, they are God's gift to you. And you are to them. I'm going to leave you tonight with, oh, talk about next week. We'll be talking about the plot, which is the second ingredient in our story. And as we finish this week's lessons, I'm going to give you three practical applications of faith walking. Number one, we do not walk by faith alone. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders, every sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out before us. If you are at Northside, you have a beautiful cloud of witnesses who surround you every day. I'm not just talking to teens. I'm talking in this family. Some who are here now and some who've gone on to their victory. I remember at times when I preach from here and look out at Lewis Tandy and remember the example that he set for so many as a husband, as a father, as a minister. He just, he just was a rock star. And he set that example. Why? Because he knew others would follow. And he didn't walk by himself, and we don't walk by ourselves. Or I think of a guy like Pete Titus and all the good things that he did. I think of our existing people. I don't have the picture, but it was such a beautiful picture. They, they don't want me to tell it, but I'm going to anyways. When we had the snowstorm after, um, I think it was, it was Saturday actually, and after the meeting I go outside and I'm intending to leave, and our elders are out there. Our elders are out there. Our, our elders are out there scraping up parts of the ice that, that the, the plow couldn't get, making piles to make sure it's easier for, so people don't slip and fall. And I'm just thinking, cloud of witnesses. Those are good elders. Those are great men. But they're perfect? No. They're setting the example, and we don't walk alone. We look at their example, and we walk by faith. Number two, faith walking means one step up many, 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 many times. This you're looking at Jacob's ladder. Um, and uh, it's quite a feat, the longest straight staircase in the world. Six, just over 600 feet 699 steps. Divided it out, the average step on that must be 10.3 inches. 699 times up. And it's the same with you. You're going to walk. You're gonna, it's going to be hard. There's going to be points when you want to quit. There's going to be times when you stumble and fall. There's going to be times when you want to go back down. But faith walking is one step up over and over and over again. And we don't quit 
and we don't give up because God's still working in our story. And the final one, well, usually at the end of the sermon, we say together now as we stand and sing. But I want to ask you to do something. It's going to be uncomfortable, might be a little awkward, but play along. I'd like everybody in here to stand up. I'm going to give you 10 seconds, and I would like you to move forward. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2. I have never seen the front row so full. Now, you can go back in your pews. Just move one pew forward or find a place and sit. Find a, find a place and sit. But make sure it's forward of where you were. Okay. In that illustration, one of two things happened. And it has everything to do with faith walking. You either didn't move because you were uncomfortable or because you were too comfortable Perhaps because you were cantankerous. You're just not going to do what that kid says for you to do, no matter what. Perhaps you were scared. Perhaps you weren't used to it. The second group, you did it. Not because it was easy. Maybe you did it out of obedience. You just do what you're told. You're good firstborn children. Maybe you just did it out of curiosity. Maybe you just did it because you're bold and you're not afraid. But you either moved or you didn't. And faith walking requires to be in the second group. Not that if you didn't move, you're not a person of faith. Don't misunderstand. Follow the spiritual analogy. You can't stay in the first chapter of your story and accept, expect the story to progress or change or move forward. You can't expect the characters to make you any different or for you to change and grow, for you to resolve the conflict or for you to come to the ending if you refuse to take the step of faith. Question whether or not I should bring this up, but I will. This morning, I could not have been more proud of young Abby. What courage. What overwhelming courage. And God love her and God love her family. That's the kind of courage it takes to faith walk. To say, I'm not okay with where things are. I'm going to move forward. Walk forward, my friends. Keep walking. No matter where you are, God's writing a beautiful story. And now, if you have a need, come as our elders receive you. Together we stand and sing.